Hello, friends, and welcome to the Healing Ground Movement. Now, for more content and bonus features, you can join us on Facebook and Instagram. And remember, all of our content is delivered freely. So please consider supporting the show by donating via the link on our website at healinggroundmovement.com or liking and reviewing the podcast on your favorite platform. Enjoy today's episode. Hey everyone, today's episode is brought to you by the incredible Rad Roller Mobility Tools, my absolute favorite tools for self-myofascial relief for at-home treatment for all aches, pains, and mobility issues. They're an incredible asset to your movement program and care that you're already receiving. Check out the link in our show notes below to get $5 off your purchase of $25 or more. Enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Healing Ground Movement Podcast. I am your host, Dr. Carly Hudson, and I am so excited to have two incredible women joining me today. Um, We have Sharon Ellison and Amy Atkinson Combs. Um, I'm going to actually have these two women introduce themselves. It's not often that we have duo guests on the podcast, um, but today we're going to be talking about taking the war out of our words. And I would like both of these women, it's a mother-daughter duo, um, to introduce themselves and, and tell how they came to this style of conversation, how it's different than the more common nonviolent communication that perhaps that we have all heard of, um, and how we can change the way that we communicate um, with ourselves and with our loved ones. So with that little bit of a teaser, uh, Sharon, would you like to introduce yourself and let us know um, just how you got started? started doing this prolific work? Um, so yes, uh, I'm Sharon Strand Ellison, and, um, and you already named the book, Taking the War Out of Our Words. The subtitle is The Art of Powerful Non-Defensive Communication. And um, I never knew I was going to write a book, but when I was a child, very young, uh, almost before certain thoughts almost felt like a squint, you know, when some adult said something that puzzled you. And um, I would hear people say it was just human nature to be violent. And, and, And so my little squint was, well, that doesn't make sense to me. It seems more like an illness than a healthy way of being. Um, and then I had a second one, which was I would hear adults say things like, I'm not going to let her or him know that they hurt my feelings. And my little squint was, well, how do you solve it if you, <laughs> if you don't tell the person? Um, and, and honestly, I never remembered those two stories until my book was going to be published again, and not in hardback, but in, in the paperback edition. And I decided I didn't like the introduction to the book. It seemed a little too formal to me. So I got up one morning and just did um, whatever people call stream of consciousness or brain dump. And I just wrote this new, this new introduction. And, and, and I didn't even, I wasn't like rereading it as I was writing it. When I got done and I went back and I read it, those two pieces were right in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I, I had written about when I was a child and I had those two thoughts. And so it wasn't until many years, even, uh, or at least quite a few years after I published my book, that I realized that the first thought I'd had about it, about being violent or being in power struggle wasn't, wasn't healthy, it was an illness, that became, that was actually the root idea for the part of my book where I show um, how we've used the rules of war, not just as a metaphor, but as the entire infrastructure for how we talk to each other. And then secondly, the idea that we don't tell someone else when our feelings are hurt. 
I realized that was the root idea for the importance of being able to be vulnerable in in the world. That 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 this whole idea that if you're vulnerable is it means you're being weak. And so to share with someone that they've hurt you might only give them an opportunity to hurt you more. And and so that became the foundation for what I call the powerful non-defensive communication where we can, um, and you mentioned uh, what might be different about this than some other methods of positive communication is that it's, it's, um, it has a dual um, sort of power or force. One is the ability to not be judgmental. Um, and it doesn't mean I always have to have compassion for someone that's doing something horrible to another person, but that balance between um, compassion and honesty. And so, uh, and so bringing in the ability to be really, really direct and honest at the same time that we live lives where we are not choosing to judge other people and where where our motivation is more along the lines of compassion and justice. So um, that's where it came from. <laughs> that's beautiful. Sharon, thank you so much. And we're going to dive. And normally I just get to pick everything out of the bio and dive right in. So I've, I'm taking more notes today. And there's quite a few pieces that I'm excited to, to chat with you both about more. But Amy, would you please let us know about you and the work that you do? <laughs> Muted. There we go. Unmuted. <laughs> um, yes, absolutely. So thank you, Carly. As you mentioned, my name is Amy Atkinson Combs. And while I am board certified, I describe myself as a lifelong coach because it feels more like a calling than a career. Um, I've been talking with my mom about powerful non-defensive communication and issues around interpersonal um, just connection and is- just issues, everything around that really since I was a toddler. Mm-hmm. And so um, I feel like this, this methodology is not only in my genes, it's in my bones and my mind and my heart. Um, it's very central to who I am and how I live my life. So it's it feels like such a blessing to me that I get to do this work in my everyday life. And um, I'm also um, certified as an emotional intelligence um, assessor and coach and executive coach, as well as personal. And I do trainings with um, all kinds of different uh, government education groups with mom and also on my own. Wonderful. Well, and I've been, I've had the pleasure of talking to both of you um, for a good chunk of time a little while ago and just all the variety of places um, that this uh, conversational technique, this approach has been taken um, and the startling impact has had. And I know that there will be stories peppered throughout our conversation that I'm excited, excited to have shared. Um, But I'd like to start us with this bit of an idea about power struggle as an illness, because as we've talked and as I've read your book, it really does feel like this foundational piece to quite a frame shift about how we talk. You know, when Sharon, you mentioned when we are meant to be violent, humans are just violent by nature. That is something that has been indoctrinated in all the stories we've heard since since we were young. And it's sort of in us to be little jerks to each other. <laughs> how is power struggle as an illness, how does that lens start to shift the conversation? Ames, which one of us wants to start? Oh, I thought you would go ahead. Please. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, when I wrote the book, and I think this coming year it will be its, uh, its 25th anniversary, 
Um, and I'm happy to say that people are uh, still buying it from in the US and other countries. Um, but one of the things I proposed in that book, and at the time I really had to say it as a belief, um, was that I believe that power struggle is actually the most pervasive and least recognized addiction on earth. And, and, and that, <laughs> I mean, that means all of us to varying degrees have this addiction, right? I mean, even if you're telling your child, honey, get your homework done before dinner because you know you want to watch that show on TV and then they don't do it and you're like, I told you. So, um, but the very exciting thing about that is that there, that scientists have now proven that it is actually a fact that power struggle is an illness, which is like amazing and exciting for me to, and Amy both to, to see this. Um, and the, the data they have says the data, what the data is indicating that's verifying this is that the, the, the chemical impact in the brain when you get into power struggle is identical to the, the chemical impact in the brain when you are addicted to drugs or alcohol. So, so it's actually literally virtually factually um, power struggle is, is an addiction. And, and I refer to it as sort of, in a way, when we describe what is human nature, we're talking about something that's like a blueprint, like, like there's something that we all have. And so I, I describe um, power struggle as the most um, uh, widely globally accepted and dangerous blueprint and, and misleading blueprint in the world. Because when we have that belief, it's what it does to us is, you know, even people who are working toward justice, what, what, what's the phrase? I, I'm fighting for justice. We have to fight for justice. Um, uh, or, or it's referred to as the good fight. And so this idea that somehow we have to overcome the other person if they're doing things that we see as hurtful even, um, the, the result of that is in any power struggle, whoever wins, the other side just waits to get you back. And so, so it's gonna accelerate power struggle um, regardless if you win you know, this round or that round in, in the various, in those various realms. So, so that defines it as an illness. And then I can say one other thing about it, if you like, um, which is that the other piece of scientific information that's relatively new is that the minute you feel a need. So, so I want to say that defensiveness, I mean, there certainly is a certain value in defensiveness. If I see someone trying to harm my child, I'm going to go try to do something about it. Right. Um, but the, the, um, the thing that they have discovered now is that anytime you have any need to protect yourself or a loved one or a friend or even an idea that if you try to convince the other person to agree with you, then what happens is that that person's brain, actually the complex problem solving part of the brain completely shuts down and it goes to the amygdala fight or flight. So they're never going to be able to hear you or respond to any kind of any kind of anything that you that you say to them. Um, and so one of the differences in what Amy and I do is that we've changed four simple things. And with those changes, this, what the scientists have proven is that if you can communicate with a person in any way that makes them feel safe enough to drop their defenses, they can drop their defenses instantly. 
And so what we've done is we've made simple, simple changes in how you use language um, that related to intention, tone of voice, body language, and, and some parts of phrasing. And it has the impact of having people drop their defenses like, like instantly. So the, 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 I loved the context of your question because it wasn't just about the power struggle, but about how does this, how can this, how can a process help to shift people out of power struggle? And what's known now is if I can, if, if we're in a conflict with each other and I stop and I communicate in a way with a tone of voice and a body language and an intention that's not designed to convince you, then the, the degree to which people can drop their defenses instantly, even in high conflict situations, um, is, is like amazing. Um, so have I answered your question? Yes, beautifully. So I, and you know, you, you brought up what I really liked you brought up so many places where, you know, we see how we are taught these things right away. It's in these colloquialisms of, of how we talk about engaging with people. And, you know, I've done, I got up on my high horse for a minute and I had done a lot of work in counseling and interpersonal work. And this was my whole undergrad. I've spent my life working on this. Like I clearly have this going really well for me and I'm reading your book and you know, the section that we got to, I kept it marked here um, about how we engage in commitment and this very idea of surrender. Um, because if we're not going to be defensive and if we're not going to engage in a fight, there's a surrender that comes before the engagement, that comes before getting defensive. And I found myself going through some of these more passive aggressive um, pieces and really feeling called out. Thank you. Um, and I was headed towards uh, visiting some people with whom I have some of the highest degree of conflict in my life. And with this lens of your work and the way that you change phrasing and tone and intention, I had to erase everything that I had ready to go on my tongue before I saw them. And eventually I was left with nothing. And it was this absolute surrender. And I don't know if it was just because of this piece of it, but I'm going to give you a huge heaping bout of credit on it, that that was the best visit I have had with these individuals in probably two decades. It has such a palpable uh, change when your entire motivation is different. And you're right. It is simple, simple things. But my goodness, is it not easy when it is how we have been trained so thoroughly our, so our whole lives? So, Amy, I know if you had more that you wanted to share on that idea and conversation about strong power struggle as an illness or, or changing changing that. Yeah, Amy, you have great Oh, I just, um, yeah, well, I mean, I think it's really interesting what you're saying about your visit um, and your languaging is, is different than I think that we frame it exactly with regard to surrender. And at the same time, it sounds to me like you understood the concepts in a way and were able to bring them into your own framework and use them in a way that was really effective, which I love. Good. Oh, good. Thanks. Like, as I was talking about your book and applying it, I was like, oh, I hope I hope I, I do it justice. But thank you. Yes, and I'll, I'll add into what Amy is saying because uh, I had we had identical reactions. We have great fun when we talk to each other because we kind of just like build on each other's thoughts. And so, it's like you're related or something. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Um, and um, so when you said that it was a surrender. Um, I had a reaction to that because I was I was looking at the two forms of surrender, which is um, um, 
like one is where you betray yourself and just totally give in to someone, and one is where you pretend to surrender and then get them behind the scenes. Get back. That was my original plan. The, the get them behind the scenes one. I, that was like half of my motive. <laughs> yeah, and, and but what I'm what I'm understanding, and I think what you got to too. Is, Amy, if I'm right, is that the word surrender for you meant something totally different. So I think the phrasing that I would put to it, and I'd love to have you add to it also, Amy, the phrasing I would put to it is that you release the need to prove a point or you release the need to be in power struggle or defend yourself or convince them. So it's it's like a, 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 an, um, where we so associate the word surrender with um, giving in. Yeah. That, that um, but but I think it was very, very clear when you said that, that your sense of surrender was that the letting go of um, the, the need to convince this other person that their values aren't right or that they're being rude to someone or that they don't understand what's going on in the world or whatever it is that, that we have to say. Absolutely. Yeah, very much so. And in, in, in my house growing up, surrender always meant releasing. Just let it, letting it go. Um, so, so that that section really struck me. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, you go, Amy. Go ahead, Mom. One other piece about that: when it, if you're in a house where they're saying, "Oh, just let it go," then there's also the issue: Are we letting it go when it's not resolved because we don't want to be direct with that person or really work on it with them? So, so that's also another uh, another piece of the letting go can be a letting go of what we, and I think you can add to this, Amy, what we think of as the need to somehow get through to the other person or have some control over their thinking, their beliefs, their feelings, or their choices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And and we would call that letting go of outcome. So in other words, going into a conversation or an interaction with you know, clearly we have desires for the outcome. It's not as if we we let go of what it is that we want, but I think the key is that we let go of the idea that we can control the outcome. Mm-hmm. And it is, it's, it's for me at least, it, it can be such a huge relief in a way to just kind of realize, well, you know, first of all, holding on to the outcome is more likely than not to actually negatively impact my odds of getting to the outcome I want. (laughs) And then secondly, um, I just find that I I love the phrase, you know, the next right step. So if I'm so focused on outcome, then I'm not present in the moment to just see what is the next right step in this conversation? And then what is the next, next right step that's been now informed by what I learned a moment ago? Um, and so I think for me, that's very grounding and useful. I love that. And so yeah, if you pre-write the script with this need to control what's going to happen, um, there's no way that you can be in that present, mo- present moment of what is going on right in front of you and, and where the conversation will ultimately lead. Mm-hmm. And what I hope the listeners are getting from, from this, you know, very vague example I shut up, set up, but you know, we all have people that are our greatest source mm-hmm. of conflict and we want things to be better. Um, is that there is kind of this tightrope through um, cultural expectations of how we've been taught to talk about conflict, because it is that compassion for yourself, your needs, um, the needs of the people with whom you're engaging, and an honesty where we're also not going to roll over on the situation if, if we are getting hurt, if our needs are not being met. Um, this idea of I'm not going to tell you how I really feel or how I'm feeling hurt. 
not a whole lot of how we've been taught to engage with conflict, at least in American culture, has many of those components to it. I'm going to beat you into the ground until I'm right, or I'm not going to tell you how I'm doing and you should know better just because I'm fuming at you. It's amazing that we don't have better conflict resolution, quite honestly. <laughs> so when we talk about um, changing now, okay, I guess there's there's two places that I want to go with this, but Sharon, you brought up, you know, the defensiveness and changing intention, voice tone, body language, and phrasing. To me, that really struck um, the most novel and nuanced chord for me um, because I think it's not just how we approach conflict resolution or engaging with other people. There's a whole lot of, of conversation about I statements and what we're saying and what we're doing. But when you really specifically touched on voice, tone, body language, phrasing, and intention, you know, we can do all the right things in really aggressive and defensive tones. And so I feel like that is a piece that really needs to be um, uh, expressed and explained a bit more. If, yeah, I know. if I can say one piece about that just initially, I think that the opposite is also true, that we can have really like wonderful intentions and the very language that we're using can create and accelerate conflict without our intention because it's so ingrained as we've been talking about in daily language and how we use our words. Um, yes, there's automatic facial expressions. Um, Amy, shall I, shall I tell the story of how um, I originally sort of came onto these? When sure, you... why not? <laughs> so, um, I was, uh, I had, um, my first work position in life was uh, working as um, a counselor in a juvenile court detention setting. And then later I worked um, as a counselor for the, for the kids and their families um, outside the detention setting and ultimately um, did work in a school district. Um, and um So I had a variety of ways that I was teaching this, but um, but I was but I was also doing trainings at um, like the community college, Lane Community College in Eugene, and um, some other places. And people would leave saying the same sentence. They didn't know each other, but I swear to you, it seemed so mysterious to me. But they would say, "This is so revolutionary and disarming," and. And I'm eternally curious, and it must have been ordained that I never asked that question because I can't imagine myself not saying, what do you mean by disarming? I mean, because we're talking, we're talking back in like 1972, 1973, long, 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 long time ago. And so um, one day I sat in my living room and I tried to think about, okay, what, what am I teaching that people would call disarming? That that was that was the word that struck me most out of that that statement. Um, this is so revolutionary and disarming. So I kept thinking about it, and finally it occurred to me. Well, I guess in a war, at the end of the war, you disarm by taking the rifle off and laying it on the ground. Um, and and then I went, oh, I'm teaching a way to communicate where you don't have to get defensive, and you will have more power, not less power. And uh, I later found out that it's not true. It's the people who won the war that take the gun away from you. But I'm glad I didn't. <laughs> but I'm glad. I'm glad I didn't know that at the time. 
<laughs> so, so the first thing I did when I had that thought was I got up and I went in the other room and I got my old, 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 I mean, it's now very old Oxford English dictionary. And I looked up one word about communication and I looked up the word question and I discovered that it was never once defined with the word curiosity. Um, and to this day, all these years later, um, I used I still have never seen the word curiosity used to define the word question. There are some more words that are neutral, more neutral now, but in those days, words like doubt and mistrust and interrogation were how the word question was defined. And the old root word of the word question was torture during a trial. I know, I know, isn't that, isn't that incredible? Yeah, I, I know you told me this when we first talked and it, it had me doing the same head shake then. Uh, I just think that how much, like, <laughs> how much I always associated that word with curiosity and with inquiry and, um, you know, but but to have it be so bombastic, um, it, it really does set up the framework for a lot of how we question each other and question that motive and and question what is what's going on in here. There there is no inherent trust in in any of those expressions. Exactly, exactly. Or tone of voice, or yeah, the expressions, the body language, the tone of voice, and right. And so um, the next day <laughs> after. I had that realization. Um, I have to say that my daughter, Amy, you um, uh, somewhere inherited a very stubborn streak. <laughs> <laughs> and if I could do this, she used to put her hands on her hips, not, not like this, but like, like this. And she, and she still does when she's telling me something, <laughs> mother. <laughs> and so, and I actually had to go back and look at pictures of young children to confirm in my mind that she was really at this age when she did this, because she did a piece of, of what would be perfect non-defensive communication with no training whatsoever. And, um, and she had, what? I don't know if I'd say I had no training whatsoever. Well, no, at that, <laughs> no, well, at that point, right. No, no formal training at the point, at the age of, I mean, she wasn't three yet. She was two. Okay, so she was like little, and she was always a tiny mite. I mean, she, so she's standing there in the in in the doorway um, with her hands on her hips and stomping her foot and looking up at me. And I looked at her and I said, "Amy, I hate it when you look at me like that." And she dropped her hands, and in a totally non-defensive way, she looked at me and she said, "But mommy, you look at me like that a lot." Children will listen. I'm like, OMG. <laughs> so I turned around and went in and looked in the back. I tried, I hold, I held my expression and went into the bathroom and looked at my, looked at my face in the mirror and went, oh my gosh, there it is. There it is. <laughs> so I don't know how soon I would have put all this together, but having had the realization that, that, that the ways that we ask questions the ways that we make statements, which is giving feedback to others, number one, and number two, expressing our own thoughts and feelings and beliefs, and three, how we create boundaries that I, I began to investigate, and every single one of them was grounded in the roots of the, of the war model for communication. And so, and so what Amy taught me in that moment was this isn't just about our words, it's about our facial expressions, and it's about our intention and all of that. And that just like that, that brought 
a whole lot of it um, together in a way that was so powerful. And I still remember as if it was yesterday when she said that it was a perfect non-defensive statement because there was no tone. I think she, she was coming more from a place of surprise and just telling me what she saw. It wasn't like, mommy, you do that to me. There was no, you know what I'm saying? There, there was no oomph to it. There was no proving me wrong or blaming me instead of me blaming her. She just literally was describing what she saw. And, and the- I don't remember being in that moment, um, but I've heard the story, of course, any number of times. And my sense is that it also was sort of like, you know, children learn from what we do, right? And so my surprise that there was anything wrong with it from your perception. Oh, wow. I've been doing it and I had picked up on it from you, right? As part of it. And then also on your end, I think maybe also this realization too that we all do this stuff and we're unconscious of it. That's right. That's right. And we both say to every audience practically, that that we are un- we are constantly unconsciously prompting each other's defenses, um, and that you'll see us do the things that we're teaching not to do. Yeah, we do that. We do that too. Still, you know, it's a lifelong journey where we're all works in progress. And it also means we have to take accountability, even in front of, in front of a group we're training or in front of an audience when we do when we when we do yeah. stuff. Like it's like oh here I go I have to really early you oh sorry mama you look like you were gonna say something yeah well and it just goes to show that even you know having to take that accountability it's it's having that vulnerability to step into the place of of not needing to to have power and control because that power and control will come from the no 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 I did everything right you you saw that wrong or some some other you know cover up. We're saying what what motivated it. Mm-hmm. I mean, sometimes we hurt someone and we really didn't want to hurt them. But as soon as you go to your own justification of why you said it, you're not recognizing that it doesn't matter why I said it. The first thing I need to do deal with is that it that it hurt someone. Amy, did you? Is this the first time you've had that thought, or have you had it before? Yeah, no, I hadn't. I hadn't really put that yeah. together before. Yeah, I think that was interesting. I haven't either. That's fantastic. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to say to that is how self perpetuating it is. See, that I think mm-hmm. uh, in the conversation that that followed that story, I forget who said it, but there was that piece that, as Amy brought out in the first place, of I'm just doing what you showed me how to do. Mm-hmm. And so we have this mirroring and and our brains are full of mirror neurons. I think they are one of the coolest thing our neurology has given to us where we we learn by mimicking, Mm -hmm. but we can see how if we were taught a very defensive style of communication and chances are we probably were, that that's exactly what we're teaching our children because they're watching us talk, they're watching us engage. And then we wonder how we get into this defensive headbutting situation now when everybody is trying to get power. And that's exactly the style of communication that we have taught our families. Right. And, and you're, you're really prompting an interesting thought for me about this idea of the mirror neurons and how in, like, for example, coach training, we are taught very specifically how to use those to build rapport in order to create connection so that, you know, we can best help someone. We can best, you know, do our work together because we are on the same page, right? And so what I'm thinking too is that as children, 
there's some association with mimicking whatever it is, reflecting, right, to our parents, our siblings, to whomever is around us as we're developing, that those reflections, regardless of what they are, are in some way in the context of connection. Mm. So then if we, in fact, are experiencing connection as this mad face that I was making at mom because I'd seen it on her or whatever, what does that do to our understanding of connection and the way that we approach it and seek it out? That's great, Amy. Yeah, that's great. That's great. And and, and and what you both were saying makes me think about um, that it's so unconscious that that someone might be telling someone about how their feelings were hurt, and the way they're saying it is, "Well, you hurt my feelings, and you did this, and you did that," and they go well, stop shouting at me or you don't need to be mad at me. I'm just telling you, I'm just talking about my feelings being hurt and you can't even think of, you you don't care. So they don't, people don't even really realize that that their tone of voice and their body language and all of those things are are coming out in a mode that is really guided by the rules of war. Um, Mm -hmm. and, And that's what we discovered over time is that even the newer um, methods of we have this long list of what we call pitfalls in um, in communication that most of the the it's beginning to change some now but but most of the newer ways of communicating to stay out of conflict um, were building their linguistic process on unconsciously on old assumptions from the war model. Mm. So for example, with asking questions, the old assumption that was brought forth is that questions are inherently interrogating. So let's kind of get rid of questions. So people started doing things like active listening. So if you say, if you, um, if, if, if you say, um, if you say to me, Carly, um, Let's see. I'm going to tell you. I'm going to tell you. I'm upset, and you just say to me, "I hear you saying you're you're really upset." Okay. Well, I was really upset about um, uh, what this client of mine said the other day. And I hear you saying you're really upset. I call it the "the" factor. <laughs> so what's happening there is you're using active listening rather than a question. Mm-hmm. And that makes you a witness, not an active participant with me. So let's do it again. Um, let's see, I have to change roles now. You say you say the, the statement of, I was really upset about what so-and-so said to me. I was really upset about what they said to me the other day. Um, what, what was it that upset you the most? How they were so condescending. Uh-huh. And did you say anything about it or how did you respond at the time? Um, no, it just, it was, it was so hurtful. I, I couldn't think of anything to say afterwards. I just walked away. Um, what happened to you when you had that sudden different expression when I asked you that question? It, I, I felt heard in this made up situation. I felt really loved. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So 
so they so so the effort to use active listening instead of a question um and and, and then uh, there's a lot i mean we don't need to go into all of them right now because there, it's there's so much but, mm -hmm. but one thing that we we can do is um um a, a little one of the little role play which is uh if um let's see and I, while you're thinking of that, I'm, I want to mention too that um, that that really what she's talking about with regard to these myths or these you know ideas that have been brought forward also can manifest in again for example with questions simply like you could active listening is one kind of larger technique but we also oftentimes simply avoid asking questions by making statements questions. Like, tell me more, for example. That's not a question. It's in, in, in its form, in its actual structure, it's a command. And so because we have very welcoming expression, maybe we have a relationship with the person, they don't get offended and they you know, tend to, it works, right? It actually works okay in, in most circumstances. At the same time, I don't believe it works as well as an actual question, such as, would you be willing to tell me more? And I, what that sets up in in these in these examples that we're pulling out here is there's so much more of an invitation and there's so much more of a humanity within the engagement. Yes, and I I think we really have been encouraged to not ask questions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I I grew up in the um, I think in middle school is when we were starting to learn active listening, and I love Sharon when you called it the uh, the no duh because we were. Mm -hmm middle schoolers. So the answer was no duh. And so, so trying to practice this among, you know, preteens was entirely respectful and very productive. Um, and, and it didn't quite take, you know, only among the, the nerdiest brown nosers of us, such as myself, did it take. But what we have really encouraged over the last few years, especially I think here in the States, as things have become so divisive, um, you know, pick pick a hot topic, pick a side of the line. It's divisive, and we are encouraged not to ask questions of other people. I, I had a um, engagement with somebody, and she told me that actually I was prepared for this, and I was told just not to talk to you about it, just not to have those questions. So I feel like the the piece that I really want to draw to the front is I think right now um, the bastardization of all of these things is about creating boundaries. And what we really need to do is just have very strong boundaries. And if, if that person upsets you, you, you cut them out of your life, or if you don't agree with that category of individual, we put up a boundary and we just don't engage with them. And now there is peace on both sides of the line because no one's going to change their mind anyway. Mm -hmm. To me, that feels like one of the biggest failed attempts that we are engaging in right now. Can we tackle that together? Yes. Are you asking us? Yes, yes. <laughs> how, how, how would you talk about, um, you know, maybe why we feel like that creation of boundaries is, is so effective, is the right thing to do, and how maybe that comes from some of these old war models of talking about well, communication? I mean, yeah, it feels obvious, but also. Right. We can briefly describe the changes for each of these forms of communication that might, Amy, what do you think? Where do you, where do you think we should start? Yeah, I, I think that's good. I also was thinking about that quote from Vicki Delajoyo um, about, um, oh, and I'm not going to come up with it in this moment. It's something to do with like 
um, with boundaries and fences and bridges and some yeah. of those words. You're going to. Yes, yes. yes. Uh, let me think a minute. She has a wonderful book called The Way of Joy, and she's mm -hmm. taken Taoist principles and shows how to um, um, use your energy in ways that are very in keeping with, with our work. Yeah, Carly's actually interviewed her, haven't you? Oh, that's right. That's exactly right. That's how we all met. I had to. Plug, I, I was going to take a moment to have to plug Vicky's episode, and I think that's going to be our flashback Friday for for this mm -hmm. week's conversation. Um, but we did have an incredible conversation with Vicky, and that was one of my first introduction conversations around boundaries and this idea that they are um, that they are not meant to be fences that keep people out. Right. But they are meant to be these spaces in which we feel safe. Yeah, and that's the, that's the quote that we want to have boundaries, not barriers. There it is. Is that, is that it? Yeah, that it sounds right. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so um, uh, I want to go back for one second to show what happens, the impact that happens when we're unconsciously using the body language. May I do that about questions, and then and then we'll describe. We can take turns, Amy, describing the different. Um, so, um, okay. So I do a role play and Amy does too, um, sometimes in front of audiences where um, we we do the first part of the role play and you guys are the audience. And and I, um, and I say to you, um, are you upset about something? Okay. Now, anybody, what's your reaction when you hear that? What's your reaction to, to my question? Well, and I, and I put, if we are listening, we're going to have this section on our YouTube video. So if you, there's a lot of facial expressions coming in in this part of the conversation. So if you're listening on podcasts, um, make sure to, to hop over to YouTube and, and find this part. Um, but what Sharon was expressing was very squinty, interrogative kind of face. And it immediately made me want to think, no, nothing, nothing's wrong. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I was doing that, what I was doing was I was squinting and I it was kind of shaking my head. And interestingly and oddly, when people are trying to show concern, they often come up and look worried. So they frown and then they shake their head. Oh, are you upset about something? And they're trying to be very sweet. But then I redo the role play. And, and, and this time I say, and where were you at the time of the murder? <laughs> much better fit, much better fit. <laughs> right. And so literally, even when we are concerned about someone and worried about them and we're asking that question, the body language you're using and the tone of voice that we're using is, is literally mirroring the voice of interrogation. And it's like, it's phenomenal. I mean, when, when you think about it. And so, and so one of the things that we work with and the, do you want to do the four changes, Amy, the changes we do in voice tone and intention for the question? That's fine. Go ahead. Okay, so uh, there's four simple changes that can be made. First of all, my intention when I ask a question can never be leading. You know, we have ancient philosophers who said, I can't remember if it was Socrates or wh which person it was that, that said that they could take anyone, any person anywhere they wanted them to go, you know, by asking certain questions. So the, the intention in a question has to be pure curiosity. And this can be true even if I'm speaking to someone who perhaps is, is spewing vitriol of hatred toward a person or someone of a certain race or someone of a certain religion, I can look at that person and I, and I can say, do you feel hatred? And what does that hatred feel like inside of you? 
and 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 that but you hear I'm coming down in tone and so so the the question has to be the intention has to be pure curiosity secondly coming down in voice tone at the end of the question and we've all learned to come up at the end right oh what happened you know uh, that coming up so um, and that fits in with that statement that the scientist or that that um, data the scientists have now that the way to diffuse defensiveness if you come down if you come down at the end of the question the person is going to feel safer than if you come up so um, so if I say what made you say that and I and I come up you're going to feel judged if I just say what was it that made you say that just now then my voice tone comes down and you see I'm not frowning I'm also not trying to visually show all sorts of concern with a worried look I'm, I'm letting, I'm present with you, but I'm relaxed. And so, and so my intention is curiosity. My voice tone comes down at the end and my body language um, is relaxed. Um, not like sort of trying to, sh to look really worried. And then the fourth change um, is a list of different kinds of questions that, that um, Amy and I have worked on that get at the heart of an issue more quickly. So changing the formatting of the question so that we're really asking about what we wanna know instead of just either being polite or being angry or something else. So that's the questions. Um, now back to- Oh, I would just, can I add to the questions here? Um, that really the way that it feels in my body, the way that I really kind of express this part is that I imagine there's a space between us and that I'm inviting you to put your answer into that space. And so if I'm in fact putting things into the space myself, like tone, body language, phrasing that you now have to interpret mm -hmm. in order to put your answer in, your answer, it, it, it muddies the space. I'm not asking a clean question and therefore I'm very unlikely to get a clean and true answer from you. Yes, and exactly that. And exactly that. What happens there then is that you will interpret according to your own history. You mm -hmm. interpret it by saying, "Oh, I'm fine." Uh, someone else would hear it as a demand for an answer, or um, th there's all different kinds of interpretations. And thank you. I'm glad you brought that up, Amy. I forgot it. Yeah, and I I, I think that we we bring our entire history to every word, not only that we say, but that we hear. Mm -hmm. And I love that invitation into a neutral space um, and that responsibility of not polluting and muddying that space as well. It does immediately create this idea that this isn't combative. I'm not trying to get you to my side. I'm not trying to get over to your side. We're co-creating this conversation and we both have a responsibility to, you know, not, not turn it into a combat, not turn it into something that is littered with aggression and minefields. Mm -hmm. And, and it, it works with kids, little kids. Um, Amy used to do it lots. You have good stories, Amy, um, of doing it with the boys, twin boys when they were young. Um, so it works with kids and it also works with people that we would automatically assume that we would be alienated from. Um, you know, and it, it can have that same impact in high high conflict situations, but we want to get through to the to the limit setting piece. Mm -hmm. um, we can jump to that and skip over statements and come back to them if you like. Um, 
Well, if you feel like it's best to go go through the four, then let's let's go ahead and hit them through, and then we we can end at the at the boundary setting piece. So we believe that there's three basic forms of communication that we that we can use at any time. One is gathering information, questions. One is statements. Statements has two distinct parts. Um, one is when we give feedback to another person. Um, tell them what we're seeing in their behavior or their attitude or, or their feelings or whatever. Um, and then the second one is expressing our own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs. And then, then the third form of communication, which in a sense is the fourth format because statements has two, um, the, the third form is limit setting. Mm-hmm. So um, do you want to go next, Ames, and talk about um, statements? Um, I, so I, I was just on, on limit setting and thinking, um, oh, cool. yeah. boundaries, but we want to do this in order. So no, go ahead, please. I'll, I'll, I'll take, um, I'll take boundaries. Okay. Um, so the changes for giving feedback to other people <clears throat> are, uh, changes that occur, the, the, the intention when I give you feedback historically and this is what was pulled over from the war model is criticism. You didn't either you're not doing it right or you're not doing what I want. Mm-hmm. And if you don't do what I want, then I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna punish you. We're skipping into predictions now, but um, but basically giving feedback was a form of was a form of criticism or chastising somebody. Um, and so when that was carried over as a foundation for some of the newer methods then people tended sometimes just simply not to give feedback. Um, Just say, oh, well, I was thinking this, rather than telling you how I'm seeing what's going on with you. Um, And so, um, and or um, doing it in a a really passive aggressive way. Uh, So the, the change there is first, the intention has to be simply to hold up the mirror. Um, And interestingly, there's one definition of the word confront that we found in the dictionary that is to stand on the other side of the line. But it's like I'm standing here and I'm I'm holding the mirror up to show you what what I'm seeing in your behavior or whatever is going on with you. Um, And so that has to be the intention. And my voice tone and my body language are the same for giving feedback as they are for asking questions. It's neutral and it's relaxed. And um, would you like a story? Yeah, please go right ahead. Okay, um, it's, it's a, there are certain favorite stories um, that each of us and both of us have. And, um, and, but it, it demonstrates the incredible degree to which someone can shift. So I was uh, doing some private therapy work um, as a counselor and um, had a couple come in. It was their first or second time. And um, she said to him, well, you're just always so angry. And he looked back and said, um, I am not angry. And I mean, I'm a completely contorted face um, and, and that louder voice. And, and so, okay, I'm the therapist working with them. So what do I do now if I confront that? then he's going to be thinking, oh, I'm just siding with his wife. And if I don't confront it, then then I'm ignoring something that's a real issue that she's brought up. So it's one of those minds where 
where typically there's this really big struggle. But if you can give someone feedback and you do it literally by just holding up the mirror, it can make a world of difference. So I said to him, um, what I see is that your face has lines in it that look almost like a, like a um, uh, anger etched into a mask. And that's all I said. Now, the world out there might think, oh, this guy's still going to be really mad because I'm still, you know, agreeing with what the wife said. He looked at me and he said, do you have a mirror? I know. <laughs> that's fantastic. Huh? That's fantastic. And, and I said, and I said um, yes, told him where to go to look in the mirror. And he came back and he came in the room and he said, my God, you're right. Now, they've been married 18 years. How often do you think they'd had this argument? Once or twice before, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe somewhere upwards of a thousand times or 10,000 times, right? Yeah. So I was writing an article and I was including this example. And, I, and, and, and at first I said he was courageous because he's walking into the room and he is now saying, yes, you've been right for 18 years when you told me I was really angry. And, and so for this guy to come in and, and confess that, yeah, you're right. I mean, which is essentially what was happening. And then I realized it, that it wasn't courageous because two things happened. When I, when I gave him the feedback with just a, a relaxed holding the mirror up without judgment, he moved out of defensive posture into curiosity. Mm -hmm. And that's when he asked for where, where was the mirror. And when he went to the mirror and he was not defensive and he looked at himself, he saw the truth of it. So when he came back, if you notice the tone I used, like, my God, you're right. That sounds more like someone who's kind of feeling inspired because they just got a new idea. Not someone who's coming back and going, well, I don't know, maybe, you know, or 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 just coming in and sitting down and, and, not, and not saying anything. So he was willing to do it. So that's the kind of, that's, that's the kind of power that that can have. And so that's the first part. So that's the part about um, um, giving feedback to the other people. The other part. And I do want to jump in really quick there because I, I also see in that opportunity, you know, it's not that, you know, when you reflected and held up to that, it's not a come over here and agree with what we've been saying. Again, it's using Amy's um, really beautiful idea of this neutral space is, I see something right here. Would you stand next to me and tell me if you see it too? I see a bird on the roof. Do you see that bird on the roof with me? Can we come look at that together? And, and it's suddenly, even if it's the same conversation that you've both been making up your own versions of the stories on for 18 years, suddenly it's a co-creation of something you are visualizing together. I'm only saying what I'm seeing mm -hmm. and I'm saying it without judgment. Mm -hmm. Yes. Do you want to do the convincing part, Amy, on the second one? On the second part? The Okay. I can do it if you want me to. All right. Um, so I get, I, I, I have a little bit of ADD in me, so I get excited and sometimes <laughs> I start running with it and forget to forget to stop. Um, okay. So, so the other part is there's no there's no particular um, you know words words now about giving people feedback are also more neutral sometimes just like with the question which they weren't in the past but there's not a real actual definition of 
how you're expressing your own thoughts, feelings, and beliefs in a definition like a definition for a question or a definition um, for feed, you know, giving feedback. Um, so, but so what I used was originally when I looked it up was I looked up the the phrase the art of persuasion because that's when I'm trying to talk to you, but I'm trying to convince you to agree with me. It's amazing, and this is true. I mean, I looked it up within recent months and it still was the same definition the 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 synonyms are words um like um power and um, potency and the antonyms for the art of persuasion are words like depression and and impotence and um and um some other word that's like sort of like fear it wasn't fear but what's what's going on is that we have also been indoctrinated to think that if we're going to be a good communicator, then we need to be good at the art of persuasion, which isn't necessarily being angrily argumentative, but it's the art of get of being able to seduce and convince people to to agree with us. So, so the change there is I need to tell you my story. So the change in intention is this is just my story. When I hear you say that, then what happens for me is I react this way. I feel this. I feel that. Um, and there's more, there's more steps in the, in, in the sort of the art of giving the feedback where I, where I bring in the honesty, where I tell you what I heard you saying, and then I tell you anything I know that might be contradictory to it. And then I tell you what, how I'm making sense out of the contradiction. So there's these three steps for giving feedback to others. And there's one step for expressing ourselves, which is literally just to tell our own story, like we would tell a friend. And that mm -hmm. has, and that has like huge, huge impact. I love it. And again, it's this co-creation of story altogether, which I'm, I'm really glad that we've gone through all these pieces in order, because I feel like Amy, as you take on these limits and boundaries, it's really, it, it's, it's, it's going to be a different lens than I was expecting had we dived right in. So please take it away. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, and, and really the reason we like to go through it in this order is because in a typical situation and or as we're first learning, this is the order that we recommend. We want to be gathering information. We want to be giving any feedback that we have. We want to be stating our position. And then it may be that things are resolved or things have shifted and we don't, there's not a need for a boundary, but then this is here if we need it, right? It's it's here as, as the final step um, of this part of the conversation. Um, and so with boundaries, the, the belief that has come forward or the myth as we see it um, is that boundaries are punitive and that they're controlling. And, you know, something we haven't said yet is that we really see this as two different kind of paradigms, really. So in other words, in the war model, we're really looking at an authoritarian paradigm. Mm -hmm. And so if you look at it in that context, it makes sense that, yes, limits are, they're pretty punishing. They're, they're coaxing. They're meant to control the outcome of what the other person does. They're either threatening or punishing or coaxing, right? And so, um, when we come back over to the non-defensive or reciprocal model, as we would call it, it's really more like versus authoritarian power. It's really about personal power. It's really about how we are standing in our own being and 
experiencing our space in the world. And so um, with boundaries, it is, um, we, we, we teach about two different kinds. One kind is called challenge choice. And the other one is the more typical limit setting. Um, so I'll start with limit setting because that one's one everyone's usually uh, pretty familiar with. And that's really where we are, in fact, in charge of the consequence of what comes with that. So, you know, it's a situation where we have some measure of control of something. So whether it's with our children, you know, it's, it's like, you know, if you, you know, don't finish your homework before dinner, then you're going to need to take care of that um, before, you know, then, then the TV is not going to come on until after you're finished. If, you, if in fact you get it done before dinner, then we can all sit down and watch TV together after dinner. And another piece of visit is it is that we also always say both sides. So we say the side of you know, if you don't do the thing that I'm asking you to do, then here's what's going to happen. Here's what I will implement in the limit setting. And if you do do the thing, then here's what can happen as an alternative. Um, and we want to land on the thing that is most appealing to the other person. Um, and not in a, in a, you know, manipulative way, but simply because that is the structure of how we do the limit setting. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, um, and I have a funny story, which I will interject here, um, which is about marshmallows. <laughs> I love it. I love this story. So, um, so we were at this solstice party um, when my twins were probably, I mean, they were little, they were probably like four years old or something like that. Um, and we were on this trampoline and we were bouncing around and marshmallows came out and they were like, we want marshmallows. And it was very cute and sweet. And, um, and so I was like, okay, you guys can each have five marshmallows. And they're like five marshmallows. We don't want, we want more marshmallows. (laughs) (laughs) And so I kind of tried to reason with them a little bit and that was not going anywhere. So I was like, okay, guys, you know, if you can be happy with five marshmallows, then you can have five marshmallows. But if you keep complaining, then it's going to go down to, um, then it's going to go down to four. Um, and I said that in the wrong order. So I'm going to do it right this time. <laughs> um, and so they were like, no, mom, I don't, da, da, da. we don't, we want more. We should just get the bag or whatever. <laughs> and, um, and so then I said, okay, well, you're at, you're currently at four marshmallows. And if you can be, if you can't be happy, with four marshmallows, then I'm going to go down to three marshmallows. And if you can be happy with four marshmallows, then I'll hand you four marshmallows right now. And, um, and they were still grouchy, grouchy. One more time, guys, we're down to three. Now, if you can be happy, if you can't be happy with three marshmallows, we're going to go to marshmallows and if you can be happy you can have three marshmallows and there was this like sudden shift in both of them simultaneously if you've ever seen little puppies like who are like look at you and their heads move at the same time you know what I mean like they're just like in sync and they're both like okay okay yeah 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 yeah. we can be happy with three we can be happy with three (laughs) and the weird thing is they were really happy with three (laughs) crazy (laughs) it is it is it is And I I love that that, you know, that brings to mind um, like some parenting styles that I've worked with my daughter, which is really just this, there are, we don't live in a world without consequences. And I think that's the other flip side of boundaries and limit settings is that we can have that too permissive style of, I don't want to be mean. I don't want to be the angry mom. I don't want to be the bad guy. And it turns into nothing. 
Right. And that's not the world in which we live in. Everything that we do has a reaction that is either negative or positive. And we are always within that choice of, do we choose to be happy with, and, and not in a spiritually bypassing kind of way, but in a, is this satisfactory or is it really not? And, and we are always confronted with that choice. And it's really lovely to have that empowerment, even at such a young age. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I absolutely agree with that. I love the word that you use the word empowerment because that is the nature. One of the natures of the um, non-defensive limit is really that it's empowering the other person to make an informed choice Mm -hmm. and it creates security and it creates understanding and being able to, it's, it's foretelling, it's telling you, here's what will happen. I mean, really what do we, we, I mean, the, the thing that's really, okay. So actually a wonderful, um, uh, metaphor that, that we use that I, I just think is so instructive is about a house, right? So if the boundaries were the house, it's a physical situation, right? And you know, your the ceiling is falling in on you all the time, or the floor is dropping out from under it. It really doesn't create security. It's a very anxiety provoking situation. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I see that as like with the boundaries, I don't want that person to be surprised. I want them to have a full choice of what they're going to do and then make their decision based on what I've said I'm going to do. And then I want to follow through because whether my follow through is what they perceive as a positive thing or what they perceive as a negative thing, either way, if I don't follow through, I'm breaking my word and I'm breaking trust. Mm -hmm. And so I really, that, that's a, that's a vow of trust that I'm building with them. Every time I follow through on what I, what I say I'm going to do, whether it's meet you for lunch or whether it's take a marshmallow away, I am also, you know, building my own character and, and showing who I am, um, in my perspective. And so, um, I think it's, I think it's really important. I love that you use the word empowerment. I absolutely see it that way. Well, and it brings in all these pieces of uh, that Sharon said right at the beginning of compassion and honesty. You yes. know, these these are compassionate ways of communicating and and very honest limits that you are setting, which also creates this ability to, I would assume, compound on a trustworthy style of communication. There, there is more um, intimacy and vulnerability built within that, um, with that honesty of, of that um, boundary setting. Right. And with each of the tools and each of the layers of a conversation or a relationship in this, in this style, um, we are, we have opportunities to build trust and to really create security in ways that I don't see in a lot of, I mean, I just, I don't see in, in other realms. So Mm -hmm. I love it. I think it's, it's such a gift. Agreed. Definitely. Um, and then, Mom, did you want to add something before I do the other part? Um, yes. Um, we look at it as creating um, security through predictability. Mm. You're going to walk down a stair and you misjudge how far that stair is away from your foot. I mean, literally, the stair could be closer instead of further away and you could still break an ankle. Because when you can't accurately predict what's going to happen there is this exactly what you're talking about amy there's this this sense of of insecurity that happens and so that um that process of setting a boundary where we completely let go of the outcome of 
which choice the person makes. And, and the sad part is that so many parents who want to be good parents, I mean, we've both worked with whole groups of parents who are coaxing their children constantly or, or they're being nice, 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 nice. And you've got to get your clothes on. You know, we got to get to school and then the kid doesn't do it. And then it's all right. Now I told you to put your clothes on. Um, <laughs> you know, we have, to, I have, you have to get to school and I have to get to work on. So there, there's all these other things where there can be then sweetness and then unpredictable anger, or there can be just this constant coaxing that doesn't go anywhere. And like you said, Amy, I, I had completely forgotten about that example because I remember I used to use it like, I don't know, a million years ago about the wall. If when the walls and the floor are moving, there is no, there's no security. I could ask kids in the juvenile, in the detention center, what would it feel like to you if you could move the walls and floors, any the wall and floors anytime you want? And you'd think they'd go, cool, man, cool. Uh-uh. They go, oh, that would be weird. They don't mm -hmm. like it because they, there's this internal part of us that knows that that is, it, you know, is the security. Right. And I actually always say that I, I believe when the kids and you may, I may have gotten this from you, mom, or, or come up with it myself. I'm not sure, but that when they're pushing on the wall, when they're pushing on the limit, that it's not because they want to see how far it can go. It's because they want to see where it'll stop. That's right. Mm -hmm. I've heard that. I've heard that one before. And it, and it is just that begging for that security for something to lean against. Yes. Yes. And, I think and to have those just, I mean, it's even little babies, little babies mm -hmm. who are flailing and, you know, they, that little burrito wrap, it mm -hmm. brings them in and makes them feel secure. I mean, I think it's, it's very common cows, right? Mm -hmm. They have those press machines for cows that really calm them down and help them to settle down. I mean, it's really amazing. Wait, I saw that in a, in a temple brand, temple Grandin yes. movie. <laughs> yeah. well, and, and she, she wanted to have a little, yeah. a little cage to protect As her. An autistic woman. She wanted yeah. that containment. Yeah. Well, and so having weighted blankets for adults, and I think yes. that, that that's what we do, you know, with our loved ones is, yes. you know, what kind of person can I be? And you're still going to stand here next to me. Yeah. And, and what's going to make you walk away? Ah, the line. Um, well, Amy, yeah. and, and I want to, you said that there was another part yeah. and we're, we're right up against the edge of time. So I want to, is yeah. you bring us home and we'll bring and, it home really quickly. We don't, yeah. we won't even do much of a story for this one. So the other one is less common. It's actually, it's, it's very interesting because it's called challenge choice. And the way it's laid out is the same as limit setting in that we say both sides and we land on the one that's more appealing. And at the same time, it's, it's a situation where we either don't have control of an outcome or we're choosing instead to predict a, a naturally occurring consequence as opposed to something that we're implementing ourselves. So that might be, you know, anything from you know, if, if you, if you continue to, um, you know, drive over the speed limit and be running yellow lights, then I'm afraid that you may, you know, get in a car accident soon. And if instead you would be willing to slow it down a bit and, and maybe, you know, when you see the yellow stop, instead of going, um, then I would feel a lot safer. And I think you'll be a lot safer. It's so much more. Like, I just think of having that approach with a teenager and, mm -hmm. and instead of this directive, combative, you know, you need to do what I say. These are the rules. These are laws. You're going to get arrested. You're going to end up in jail, but I'm, I'm compassionately worried about you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And my experience is that what you're describing 
and I've had two teenagers at the same time. So I have some experience <laughs> with this and I've done it too. Um, it, it doesn't work. I mean, it literally doesn't work. It either shuts them down or instigates rebellion in mm-hmm. my experience. And so this other way of approaching it really leaves room for um, people to walk away without conflict or to instigate more conversation. And, and so, yeah. Well, and it's and what we're doing there is we're simply telling them, and it's it's um there's one other distinction for it, which is that it's less ten it's it's more tentative than when we set the limit because we will implement the consequence. So that's very definitive. But mm-hmm. what we're doing here is we're telling the other person what we believe they will probably experience in life if they continue interrupting people or running yellow lights or so it's life we're we're describing what we what kind of consequence we think will come to them in their own life but we natural consequences it's a natural consequence but it has nothing to do with us so and again using that compassionate tone um that that body language that is not this Oh, I'm just so worried that you will do it, but just very matter of fact, very calm, very inviting into that conversation, being a participant in it. Yes. And I think that tone is really informed, circling back to the beginning of our conversation by this understanding that we cannot control outcome. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can't control what the person's going to do in their driving habits and what I can control is sharing my perspective in a way that is predictive and foretelling mm-hmm. and gives them some information that they can then, you know, make their own decision. Yes, yes. And there's one there's one last little tiny piece I'll throw in quickly, which is that when we ask questions, when we give feedback and when we create um boundaries, when we make predictions, in every one of those cases, our voice tone is neutral and comes down at the end of the sentence instead of up. That's like crucial for for all three of those. The only place where, where we express our emotions and can do it fully is when we are saying what we feel, what I believe, what I think, what I feel, what I'm doing or what I intend to do. When I'm expressing my own story, I can have all the pain that I want, or I can describe the anger that I've experienced. So I can have my full range of of emotions, but when we leak them into giving feedback and asking questions and setting boundaries, we we, we totally create power struggle. Beautiful. Well, I will definitely be practicing the the downward in my tone. I mean, just hearing the differences in the examples that you gave, um, it is so much more inviting. And, and it does create this puzzle of to how we ever learn to do it differently in the first place. But, you know, I think a, a good old Webster's Dictionary points a long way in the direction of, of how that came to be. Sharon and Amy, thank you so much for joining me today. This was a phenomenal conversation. I think we could go on for another hour and a half. <laughs> Easily. Um, I'm going to leave my kid on the curb at school that they're not, but I, I can't go get the kid. Um, I, I am so grateful for your time. I am so grateful for the work that you have done. I'm personally grateful for your book, Taking the War Out of Words, The Art of Powerful Non-Defensive Communication. Um, it's already made an impact. I am still, it's, it's a quick read, but a slow work through, if that makes sense. So I'm still working through it. Um, we will have all of the places um, where our readers can, our listeners can find you and, and your future works listed in the show notes below. Thank you so much for joining me today. Yes. And I want to say that one of the things that's beautiful about this interview is 
that you are willing to talk about your depression or your vulnerabilities. And we often say that it's only through our vulnerability that our greatest power comes. Mm. So uh, I think for for me, and I, I can tell for you too, Amy, um, that your your willingness to have that kind of openness, which we try to do as well, is is um, has made the interview really, really beautiful for us as well. Mm-hmm. Thank you, thank you. I'll, you got me blushing, and Aww. I just uh, this this is uh, we we spent the the first fifteen minutes before recording just just loving on each other to to have uh, <laughs> such um, uh, I like Sharon's idea of, of people who are open to feedback, conscientiousness, and lasting impact. Um, thank you for being those people, um, and and to all of our listeners, I thank you for being here and listening and engaging in this conversation. So that you may too be be the kind of person who doesn't just want to engage in your own health and well being, but the health and well being of your community, whether it is those closest to you or the world at large. Um, We will see you next week for another episode of Healing Ground Movement Podcast. In the meantime, be well. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard and got a little something out of it to help you on your journey to health. Please, if you're inclined, share this podcast with a friend so we can help more people lead healthier lives. Now remember, the information expressed in these interviews is for informational and not diagnostic or treatment purposes. However, I hope you find that having the right information and resources can go a long way to helping you on your healthcare journey. Ask the right questions and seek out professional health. We'll see you next week for another episode of the Healing Ground Movement Podcast. Be well.